0: So, we're going to start a new text. So it's important when we start a new text that we have a good motivation for doing it. Yeah. So we just sang, we just chanted the um, prayer for refuge in bodhicitta, but we really need to try and internalize that and you know, want to study this text and learn the whole path so that we can actualize it and embody it in ourselves. So not just to get some information, not just uh, you know to see, well, does this guy kind of have to say for himself, but, you know, to really uh, learn the teachings so we can practice them and embody them. So it's called the Gomchen Lam Rim. Okay, it was written by Gomchen Nalantrapa, so, um, Gongchen means great meditator. It's kind of like a title he usually given to somebody because of how they live their life. So, uh, Gongchen Drapa was a nadir, native of Song province. Song is central Tibet, you know, the province where Lhasa is. Yeah, Song is the, that central area. And so, he was the disciple of um, another master called J. Lojo Tempa, who was the sixth Gandhan Tripa. So the Gandhan started with J. Tsongkhapa, means Gandhan Tripa is the throne of Ganden, and Ganden was uh, the, the monastery started by J. Tsongkhapa. And so, you know, they have successors to the throne. So Gonchen Nagdrapa's teacher, J. Lojo Tempa, was one of the successors and he was also the abbot of Dakpo Monastery. So Dakpo Rinpoche who lives in France, so that's his monastery in Tibet. And um, Navantrapa also founded several other monasteries in Loka, um, which I've been to, it's in South Tibet, and also the Dakpo region in South Tibet. And this Long text that we're studying, is um, like a, an abstract or a condensation of the of Jason Kappa's middle length long rim. Okay? And it's been described as the key to unlock that text. Okay? So the, the middle length long rim is it's not as long as the as the long rim channel of the Great Exposition. But it's it's long, you know it's long and it's detailed And so I thought this text, you know, the easy path which we just went through was a much more meditative text. And so this one is meant for meditation as well. But I was thinking it's a bit more detailed than the easy path, and that you know, if we go through this and learn this, then afterwards maybe we can do the middle length long rim, if we can find a good translation of it. Okay. 'Cause I think it's good you kind of build up to it because the the middle length long rim and the, the, the greater mm-hmm. the great long rim are both much longer, much more detailed, and so it's good to have the whole general overview and be already meditating on these texts before you get into so much detail. So that's what I'm thinking. Okay. So He starts out, homage to the perfect gurus. Yeah, so, you know, paying homage, being respectful. Um, You know, you always start out major activities like that, with taking refuge and depending on the Three Jewels. Now, it it says uh, in our refuge guidelines, to always take refuge whenever you're doing any kind of project or any kind of work. So this is the uh, you know showing how he's doing it. So through his superior practice of the three instructions and of the transmitted and realized teaching, he is able to uphold the conqueror's thinking exactly, abiding by this great master. So the great master here he's referring to his own teacher, the Lojo Tempa, who, um who lived 1404 to 1478. So this text was written fifth century, fifteenth century. Okay, and then he says, "I shall practice the stages of the path of sutra and tantra." So this text mostly deals with the, the sutra path. There's one paragraph about tantra at the end, but he's including it, so he's you know making a determination to explain it as well as to practice it. And the, the he mentions, um, you know, his teacher's superior practice of the transmitted and realized uh, teaching. So the transmitted teaching—sometimes this is translated as the scriptural and realizational dharma. Yeah, but the scriptural teaching or the transmitted teaching—that's the one. That's the scripture, the scriptures, the words, the. The discourses that's passed down, it's transmitted from one teacher, you know, from a teacher to disciple, and uh, then the realized dharma is the realizations that we gain from practicing the transmitted dharma. So we want to, you know, preserve the dharma for future generations. So we do it not only through study and learning the transmitted dharma and hearing it, passing it down. But also by practicing it and realizing it, so we have the transmitted and the scriptural teachings. Okay, I think that's that's good to kind of understand. Otherwise, sometimes we think, oh, it's only the words, you know, that has to be passed down, or we think, oh, words, you know, too many words. I just want to meditate and think that that's what the only thing that needs to be passed down. But actually, we need both, don't we? Because in order to meditate, we need to listen to the teachings. So we need the tra- the transmission of the teachings. Okay, so it says, the this explanation of the stages of the path, the so stages of the path is long-rim, okay? Long means path, and rim means stages, or gradual, or, you know, that idea something that you go through stage by stage. Okay, so this explanation of the stages of the path to awakening has four sections. The greatness of the author, the greatness of the teaching, how to listen and explain the teaching. So those are done quickly in the beginning. And then fourth, the fourth one, how the disciples are progressively guided by the actual teaching. That's where the main content this is. Okay, so the, the first three, you know, these main outlines, so, you know, you go through re- relatively quickly. They're to give you background and, and also inspiration. Yeah, it's quite, they're interesting. So the greatness of the, of the author, yeah, is uh, he, he says, for the first, refer to other works. <laughs> okay, so he's not going it, to... It's interesting because in the, in the um, Lamrim text, when J. Rinpoche, you know, he's writing the Lamrim, but on this first outline, The Greatness of the Author, he tells the story of, of Lamatisha.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because he kind of... Uh, Jeffrey mentioned this the other time, that he sees Lamatisha as like the author, even though Lamatisha didn't write it. But he said, you know, I got the inspiration from this, from Atisha. Okay, so, um, I have to use this. (laughs) So Atisha, (laughs) I can't do this anymore. So Atisha uh, lived uh, late 10th, early 11th century. He was um, a sage from the the Vikramala Sila monastery. In India, which was on the level of Nalanda, Odantapuri, these large um, monastic uh, universities. And so uh, he was invited to Tibet. Uh, Tara told him to go. <laughs> yeah, said his life might be a little bit shorter if he went, but he should definitely go to help those heathens in Tibet. And uh, And he went. He was he was quite an incredible master. But they don't, you know. He was born as a prince in Bengal, and you know he went through the whole thing with his family too, having to leave the kingdom because his godfather wanted him to take over the empire, and you know he had he ran away to the forest, and Mm -hmm. uh, and then. He, you know, he really wanted to receive the the teachings on Bodhicitta, and he couldn't find a master in India, you know, to receive them from in, in the way that he wanted to hear hear them. And so that's when he went to uh, Indonesia. Yeah, he was on a boat for I think 12, 13 months, and there were the f- sea monsters and the big waves, and I mean, quite a journey. And uh, you know, but these stories sometimes they, they sound a little bit like too much. But when you think, it doesn't matter whether it's too much or not. If it's a rough sea, you know, it's not very pleasant. And look what people did to get the Dharma teachings back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to go through that, or or Shwasang from China, you know. Crossing over the the Karakoram Mountains to come into um, into A- India or I Ching also from from China, you know, going but via the boats, and you know it's dangerous, and there were so many people who also went those routes, and they died either from illness or bandits or who knows what. But um, I find it quite inspiring to think of all those people and and. You know, they wanted the Dharma so badly that they they endured all these life threatening things. And like I said, some of them got killed. Um, you know, to, to get to India where they could learn the Dharma. Or in Atisha's case, to go to Indonesia. Um, you know, there was certainly a the golden Isle where he went uh, to learn. Yeah, so it wasn't easy, you know. You travel, different country, different food, different climate, people speak a different language. Yeah, so he went there, he learned from Mama Tisha, I mean, from uh, Sir Limpa for many, many years. Uh, they think that um, uh, so there was a big like monastic university also. In Indonesia, where Sri was, they think it was on um, Sumatra, the northern island of Sumatra, in a place called Jambi. So I met somebody uh, when I was in India last year who had been there, and she's very keen on taking people on tours. I'd actually like to go on a tour of the Buddhist places in Indonesia. Yeah. So, uh, Atisha went there. He learned the teachings. He came back to India, and then, after that, some Tibetans invited him to come. The Tibetans similarly they went through quite a lot of danger um, there's uh, the long story involves kings and warfare and you know trying to get your father out of prison by paying with gold and not having enough gold and Anyway, they finally, you know, got him the father. Anyway, they finally got to India and invited Lama Tisha and Tara. Told him to go and so he went. And he, you know, he was quite an erudite scholar and a practitioner. But apparently, uh, Lama Tisha taught mostly uh, refuge and karma, which are, you know, more introductory topics. But it seems that he did that because that's what the people of Tibet really needed. There had been the first transmission of Buddhism to Tibet beginning in the 7th century, and then there had been a lot of degeneration, and there had been a king who had come and closed the monasteries and shattered the sangha, and it was a really quite degenerate. A lot of things were lost. And so they wanted Lama and Tisha to come and reestablish uh, Buddhism there, and so that, thats why he went. It's what I find quite interesting is, I—I I can't imagine this, you know, because they had uh, in La, in, La, in Tibet they followed the Milisvara Vinaya lineage, and uh, Tisha was from the Mahasanghika. Vinaya lineage. And they asked him not to give ordination so that they could only have, they didn't want to have more than one Vinaya lineage in Tibet. They wanted everybody to be Mula Shavastavada. And I have that same reaction. How can you ask somebody with the qualities of Atisha not to give ordination? I don't understand that, but somehow. They did, and they, they see, see that as praiseworthy now, because it's only the one lineage. And he was also a great Tantra master, but it seems like they also asked him not to teach Tantra, or at least not to teach it wisely, uh, widely. Mm-hmm. So, quite interesting, you know? Um, yeah. Anyway, it was really due to Lama Tisha's kindness. In, in going to Tibet and teaching, uh, you know, for so many years that Buddhism got reestablished, established And so you have the uh, first transmission, you know, that came before uh, Lam Dharma, who was the horrible king that destroyed everything. That turned into the Nyingma tradition, and then the, the three um, new translation schools came from Lama Atisha, the Kargya, the Gelu, and the uh, Sakya. Okay? But if you, if you look, actually, in all four of the Tibetan tr- traditions, they all have these kind of long Rim texts like this, so that everybody was really influenced by Lama Atisha in one way or another. Okay, So you have in, in Kargya, you have uh, Gampopa's Jewel Ornament of Liberation, you have in Nima uh, Longchenpa's text, I kindly Vent to us so I'm not sure what the name of the text is, um, but that's kind of like the basic long rim. Huh? Longchen. 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 I'm not sure if, if that is the long rim or another teaching. Do you know? the
1: that's the Numura
0: practice, okay, yeah, but the Lomrim text is... I think the one you mentioned. Is... Kindly bent to ease us? Okay. And then Pacho Rinpoche, also from the Enigma, he wrote this fantastic book called uh, Words of My Precious Teacher. One of my teachers, Geshe Nawandarge, used to quote, quote that book a lot, and Pacho um, Rinpoche was great. He, I love these teachers who just... <laughs> Say it, you know, really straight as it is. And don't let your ego wiggle out of it. You know, and then in the Sakya, you had uh, the beginning part, I think, of the three visions. You know, that. Okay, so, you know, all the the Tibetan traditions, you know, when it comes to the, the foundation teachings. And by foundation, we shouldn't think, oh, it's just it's the simple teachings. Yeah. The foundation teachings. You do that for a little while, then you go on to tantra. Yeah, actually, the foundation teachings are very, very profound, and they take quite a long time to to soak into you and to really understand them. So we shouldn't kind of uh, gloss over them and think, "Oh, foundation stuff is easy." It's it's not. It's not. Okay. Um, you know what God was teaching last weekend? Uh, that's included in the three principal aspects of the path, which is called foundation material. Was that easy? No. Okay. <laughs> point made. <eight. laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, then the second point the greatness of the teaching. So they, they always talk about this at the beginning. You know, and it's important so we know something about the author. We know something about the teaching. Okay? So the greatness of the teaching, there's there's four subdivisions that's telling us how what the greatness of the teaching is. Okay? So here it's referring to the long term teaching. So the first one is the greatness of it's allowing you to realize that all the teachings are free of contradiction. Okay, so what that means, it says, understanding that within the three vehicles, so the here here, solitary realizer bodhisattva vehicle, on what is to be discarded and realized in either the main path or one of its branches, constitutes actually for the three vehicles, it could refer to the fundamental vehicle, the universal vehicle, the tantric vehicle. He's not clear here. But anyway, that whether it's either the main path or one of the branches, constitutes the method for any individual to achieve Buddhahood. Okay, so what that is, so I think it's probably the fundamental vehicle, universal vehicle, and tantric vehicle. Um, so that's the meaning of re- realizing that all the teachings are free of contradictions. Okay, so what this means, Yeah, because the English that the the, tra- the translation here needs a lot of work, okay and I'm, I'm not happy with the translation. Anyway, it's what we have. But what this means is that it makes it easy to understand how there's nothing incompatible or contradictory in all of the Buddhist teachings. okay And that's important to to understand because if you don't understand it, then you hear things talked about in different contexts, and you think the Buddha is contradicting himself. So for example, when we talk about precious human life, we talk about the preciousness of our human body, and how wonderful it is to have this human body, because it is the basis of our Dharma practice, and you know what a fortune it is, this great opportunity. And then, but when you you're talking in the for the middle capacity beings, then you talk about this body as just a lump of vegetative material that is rather foul and puts out foul stuff, and there's nothing at all to be attached to in it. So you could get really confused. Wait, precious human readers, they said, I'm so lucky to have this body and it's wonderful, and then. You know, later on it tells me it's this garbage heap that's full of foul stuff. So, you know, is the Buddha contradicting himself? Well, no. It's just, you know, in the context of looking at our opportunity to practice the Dharma, then we are amazingly fortunate to have uh, a human body and human intelligence, uh, because it gives us the opportunity to... To uh, to think and learn and use language and everything like that. So in that context, the human body is very precious. In the context of studying, you know, the the twelve links and how we take rebirth into samsara. In that context, the body is seen as like the encapsulation of, you know, it's it's the The result of afflictions and karma, and it's something we cling on to, and that clinging keeps us bound in cyclic existence. And so, you know, from that point of view, this body is nothing great and not to be attached to. Okay, so can you see from different viewpoints how the body is, is looked at differently? So, if we don't understand that, then we can get really confused and, you know, like that. Or even in terms of of the precepts, you know, when you keep the Vinaya precepts, there's a, you know, the fully ordained monks and nuns vows, there's a lot of very detailed vows um, that govern, you know, very small actions that you do throughout the day. And then there is a uh, bodhisattva vow that says you're supposed to do what's beneficial for sentient beings even if it entails going against some of these more detailed specific vinaya precepts yeah so again you could think wait a minute you know Buddha told me to take the vinaya precepts the Pradibosha precepts I did that now he's telling me that you know some of the small ones you know but I should consider bodhicitta more important. So, what's the story here? You know, it could seem like the Buddha's contradicting himself. Or or that it's not for a practice for one person to do. But again, the Buddha's not conduct contradicting himself because when we take the, the uh, Prati motion precepts, you know, it's done uh, in order to regulate our, our physical and verbal actions. And it's done, you know, for, for people at the really basic level, after you take refuge, the first thing to kind of get a handle on. When you progress, you take the bodhisattva precepts. That's later on, you know, when once you've uh, learned about bodhicitta, you have this feeling for wanting to become a Buddha, you are already have a good foundation in the Vinaya and the Pratimoksha precepts. And then, in that context, somebody who's practicing the Bodhisattva precepts, it's more beneficial for that person to do something that is going to benefit others in the long term, you know, rather than pay minute detail to some of the small pratimoksha precepts. Yeah, if kind of it's it would be more beneficial to sentient beings if you did some other activity. Okay? You getting what I'm saying? So, for the, the beginning practitioner, yes, all the small things really training and them, getting, getting everything down well, as, as best as you can. Then, later, when you're more experienced and your motivation has progressed and you're really working for the benefit of sentient beings, then, you know, if it's, there's something more important to do that would benefit sentient beings, rather than let's say blessing your robe or not blessing but declaring your robes or declaring medicine or declaring that you're drinking orange juice or something like this, then it's permissible to do what's of more benefit to sending things. So it's not contradictory. It's for one person to practice, but in different levels of their practice when they're capable of doing different things. Okay? So um yeah, so this, this this one greatness of the teaching is to see that there's nothing incompatible or contradictory in all of the Buddha's teachings. Okay? So similarly, you know, when the Buddha in the in when we have the three levels of being, the first one is work for future rebirth good future rebirth. Second one is forget about future rebirths and get out of samsara. So you might say, wait a minute, Buddha told me to work for a good future rebirth, and now he's telling me forget future rebirth and got to get out of samsara. He's contradicting himself. Well, no, he's not. It's just at the beginning, the most important thing is to work to have a good rebirth, because that's the most imminent thing, you know, we're going to die, And we need to make sure we have a good rebirth because without a good rebirth, we're not going to be able to practice and attain any higher states. Yeah? But then, in the context of somebody who's more advanced, then you don't work for just a a good rebirth, you work to stop all rebirths. Okay? Then, somebody who's more advanced, say, No, what are you looking for? Your own nirvana. You know? And the, the, you know that don't pay attention to that. You should, you know, attain full awakening. So then again, you can get confused. Wait a minute. First, he told me to get a, for, a good rebirth. Then he told me forget good rebirth, get it, get nirvana. Now he's telling me forget nirvana. And you know, I can't think about just nirvana for myself. I have to become a Buddha. Why can't the Buddha make him his mind, what he <laughs> paid for you know. So. Uh, it, if we're small minded, we, we don't see that these are actually teachings designed for one person, but at different stages of the path. Okay? It's kind of like parents teaching little kids, you know, what what you tell your kids at different ages depends upon the maturity of the kid, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, then the second greatness is uh, it allows you to easily discern the conqueror's main ideas or the Buddha's intent. Okay. Okay, the third? That's the third, sorry. So the second one is the greatness of allowing you to recognize that all the scriptures as instructions for practice. Okay. So it says, by, pra- by relying on the precious instructions, Once you have ascertained the meaning of all the discourses and become skilled in which practices require analytic meditation and which ones require stabilizing meditation, you've understood all that, then you cease to reject the teaching and you recognize all the discourses as instructions. Okay? So what this means is that um, it makes... Sorry, you have to treat each computer differently. You know, it's, it's like you have to treat each person differently. So you have to treat each computer differently. Okay, so it makes um, every spiritual instruction, without exception, dawn on the mind as a personal guideline. That's the meaning of the second one. So it helps you when when you hear a teaching. It it helps you understand where different teachings belong on the schema of the stages of the path to awakening, and it helps you to realize that they're all teachings for personal instruction. Okay, and this is quite important, okay, because otherwise, you know, there's a danger that we think, well, these teachings are all just for intellectual amusement. And they're kind of interesting, um, but they're just so that you learn a lot of information, but they're not really for somebody to practice. Yeah? So that's a big boo-boo, if you think like that. Yeah? We should understand that all these teachings are meant for somebody to practice, you know? And that somebody is us. Yeah? So they're all meant as personal guidelines. You know, of course, what we practice at different times in the path is going to be different because our man, our mind is going to gradually be expanding, and you know, so we're going to be gradually become more capable of understanding more. But it's important, you know, to when you hear different teachings, to to accept that they're they're all fit for for us to practice. Maybe not at this moment, but at some time or another during the, the, our practice. Okay? Um, and, and so that's really important, you know, like I said, because otherwise you, you think, oh, all this stuff is not for practice, it's just verbal blah blah, or it's for somebody else to practice, it's not for me to practice. And anyway, all these different lamas are coming to town, and they say all different kinds of things, and I can't make any of it hang together. Okay, So this is one thing that is really, really beautiful about the labyrinth, is it helps you to, um, to put all the teachings together and to understand them as a path of practice. So that, um, and I think this is especially important, the, you know, now in our modern day, because so many people, you know, especially lay people, you know, when you're in a Dharma center, you may not have consistent teachings, you know, of a text over a period of time. You have guest teaching, teachers come. So one teacher teaches this, next teacher teaches that, third teacher teaches this. Then you're going, what am I supposed to practice you know because they're, they're all the Dharma's very vast you're hearing all these different teachings you get really confused okay so what's brilliant about the long ring structure is as you learn it you see you know I went over this um, two, two weeks ago so if you didn't it's good if you listen to the teaching from two weeks ago it's very helpful. Because there I explain the three levels capacity being, and how each being has a certain motivation, the meditations you do to generate that motivation, the meditations you do having after you've generated that motivation in order to actualize the purpose of that motivation. So it's very helpful to understand that. Because then, you know, when different teachers come and teach different things, you can say, oh, that goes here at the beginning of the path, oh, that goes there at the end, that goes here, that goes there, and then you can put it together as, as a whole, instead of getting quite confused. Okay, now we're at the third one, that you can easily discern the, the conqueror's um, intention. So, although the great treatises are the supreme instructions, it is difficult for an untrained mind to identify the main principles in them, and discerning them requires time and great effort. Whereas with this instruction, you can easily determine the conqueror's main ideas. Okay, so this is is really true. You know, if you sit down. You know, all of the, the four Tibetan traditions they all have a curriculum of texts that you're supposed to study and you study these for you know 15, 20 years or whatever and they go into detail on all sorts of different topics and you can learn these and you go what am I supposed to do with all of this? you know? How in the world do I put this into practice? Okay, so, you know, what does the Buddha mean? Um, or even, you know, you're studying the different tenet systems. You know, the Vyasakas say this, and the Chatajakas, the Chitamajas, the Madhyamakas, like, what do I believe, and how am I supposed to practice this, and what does it do? Very easy to get confused. Yeah, because the great treatises from India are really, they're very vast, they're very profound. The thing that is so brilliant about the Long Rim is that it extracted the main points from all these treatises, and then arranged them in an order that makes it very easy to practice. Okay, So it's the, by the, the three levels of capacity, being the person who seeks for a good rebirth, Person who seeks liberation, person who seeks full awakening. Okay, and then you systematize the teachings according to those three capacities of beings. Yeah, and then you understand where all the great treatises, the material from the great treatises, where it where it goes. And I can really see the benefit from this because when I was studying in, in France. Uh, with Kinzer Jamba Tensho. I mean, I love studying the Indian treatises, I thought it was really great, but many of the people I studied with, just, you know, like like friends, were saying, how how are we supposed to practice this? Yeah. Like like you study even something like Lowrig, you know, the, the different kinds of awarenesses, or the different mental factors, what am I supposed to do with this material? How do you practice that? Yeah. Or if you're studying about syllogisms, yeah, Ooh, a lot of debating stuff, you know. What, how does this fit into my practice? What do I do with this? Or you go off for some tantric initiation. And now you're visualizing this and that, the other thing, and like you don't even know who you are, and you're visualizing yourself as five different other deities, and you get really confused. And I was like, where does this go? Okay, but when you have this understanding, you know, of the progressiveness of the long rim, it really helps in that way. Okay, because you able to see what the Buddha's intention was when he taught different things. Okay, and then the fourth greatness of the teaching, it allows you to automatically avoid grave misdeeds. So for those of us who are happily satisfied with the amount of negative karma we already have, and don't really want any more, this is very helpful. Yeah. Okay, so it says, hence, with this instruction, you give up forsaking the excellent discourses by imagining some of the conqueror's words to be obstacles to attaining Buddhahood and others to be methods for it. You know, seeing some of the Buddha's teachings as obstacles to attaining Buddhahood, if you think like that, you're in big trouble. Okay, so committing grave misdeeds thereby is automatically avoided. So this is it. It sounds like you know, seen teachings of the Buddhas, and obstacles, and you know what this means is that, and you see actually this happening so much is people criticizing different Buddhist traditions. Yeah, what this is referring to is you may practice one tradition, but because you don't know how all the different steps of the path fit together into a whole, then when you encounter another tradition that is emphasizing a different aspect of the path or expresses different aspects of the path in different ways than what you're used to, it's very easy to get really judgmental and say, these traditions are all BS. You know, my tradition's the right one. Now, ra, 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 my tradition. So this is precisely the, the reason why His Holiness wanted the book, Buddhism, One Teacher, Many Traditions written, is to help people understand the commonalities of the teachings, and to also see that there are differences of interpretation. but we can still respect each other even when there's differences of interpretation. Or even when there's different ways of laying things out. So just because something is different from what we're used to doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah? And this is is really quite important because um, in Asia there's a lot of sectarianism. You know, because there wasn't a lot of Transportation and, and um, communication networks. Each tradition, what they heard about other traditions was just, you know, hearsay. And then that's what they taught to their disciples. They had never even met people from the other tradition. They heard, you know, oh, all these people who, who practice this and such, they're all selfish. And all the people who practice this and such, they're practicing magic. It's not even the Buddha's teaching. And, you know, and all the traditions would criticize. And when you think that, you know, the Buddha was an an amazingly skillful teacher, he taught so many different things because he realized that sentient beings have different ways of thinking and that one size is not going to fit all and that different people are going to be. Attracted to different ways of practicing. And you can't say, you know, everybody has to do exactly like this, because people are attracted to different things. So he taught like this wide variety of different teachings so that there could be, you know, different ways of practicing according to different cultures. Yeah. But if people don't understand that, then whenever they meet something that's different, then they're they're critical, yeah. And uh, yeah, and you find this this kind of sectarianism throughout Asia, and then it, it came down, you know, into the Westerners too. One thing I think that we Westerners are, are um, what we're doing to try and prevent this is that people meet from different traditions. Like this year, we're you know. We're having the 21st annual um, gathering of Western Buddhist monastics. You have people from different traditions coming together in the spirit of friendship. And then, you know, we see how, many, you know, how much we have in common. And it really develops your respect for other traditions and respect for um, the Buddha as a skillful guide. But you know, when you think about you know many of the teachers of the Westerners, you know, they've never met people from other traditions. You know, some, somebody like His Holiness is really remarkable. He goes out and he meets everybody, you know, Buddhist, non buddhist doesn't matter. Okay, but most people are not like that. You know, they have their own tradition, their own teachers, their own lineage. Yeah. And, uh, and so then it becomes quite easy to, to criticize others. And if we do that, we're, cri- we're basically criticizing the Buddha's teachings. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want the karma of criticizing the Buddha's teachings, because that's pretty heavy karma. Yeah. So the nice thing about learning this long Rim is that it gives you this broad over you know view of the different elements that constitute the path. And then you meet another tradition that practices these elements but does it in a different way and your mind is big enough to you know encompass that. Okay? So so you find, you know, at the Abbey, well first of all, you know our practice tradition is Tibetan. But our monastic tradition is from from uh, Taiwan. We're following the Chinese monastic tradition. Yeah? Some people go, "What? What? You're not following the Tibetan monastic tradition? Why, well, you're Tibetan Buddhist, you know?" Well, it all came from the Buddha. Yeah, the Buddha did not teach one monastic tradition and not the other. You know, the Buddha laid out the Vinaya. All the different Vinaya traditions came later. They all came from the Buddha. Does it really matter which one you follow? No. The important one is that you follow one of them. Yeah. And in our case, we chose the Dharma Guptaka, the one that's followed in China, because um, when I went to take full ordination in Taiwan. That was the lineage that was given. That's the only lineage that has the full ordination for women, and we wanted to have the women at the Abbey be fully ordained. So we chose that Vinaya tradition to follow. Okay. So there's a rhyme and a reason, and, and it worked out well. And I don't know if, if if I don't know if others are doing this as monasteries, individuals do it. Yeah. But we're doing it as a monastery. Okay, so uh, same thing. You know, we have some, We do some Chinese practice. You know, when we do the Chinese chanting. But if you look, you know, when we chant the three refuges at the end, they're also dedication prayers, aren't they? Yeah, it's taking refuge and dedicating your merit, all in three verses. So the meaning is the same as in the Tibetan tradition. We chant a prayer translated from Chinese. What does it matter? The meaning is all, all there in already in what we're practicing. Okay.
1: Yeah. Do you have advice to how to react when you came across someone that I mean for us gay people in this society when you come with some Across uh, a Buddhist person
0: there is criti- that is
1: criticizing. Uh, that is? Critic? Criticizing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, and so. You, to, to the
0: Buddhist practice? So, when you meet a a Buddhist lay person who's criticizing the Buddhist practice?
1: Lay or not lay, but for us lay people, when you come across someone who's criticizing the Buddhist, the other Buddhist tradition. This
0: person who's criticizing is Buddhist or is non Buddhist? Yes is buddhist then you keep your distance yeah that's what i would say yeah because i mean if somebody's the, what you have to understand is there's a difference between debating principles and criticizing okay so debate is all throughout the buddhist tradition So let's take out a point. We debate it because we're trying to find the truth in this. Okay? So debating the content, that's fine. But saying this teaching didn't come from the Buddha is very different. Okay? Saying, oh, this teaching didn't come from the Buddha, this is all made up stuff. Yeah, that's very different than debating to uh, like analyze the the different tenet systems, statements on the nature of reality. Okay, it, it's a it's a kind of difficult thing because uh, there are people that are kind quite controversial who call themselves Buddhist. Yeah, so what do you do? Do you Respect them? Do you not respect them? Do you go to their teachings? Do you not go to their teachings. You know, um, I think they they always say that it's it's up to the students to really analyze and check out the qualities of a teacher. And if a teacher is teaching something that does not belong to the general Buddhist, what is Accepted as general Buddhist doctrine, you know, then you have your red flags, you know, because maybe they're making something up. Or if somebody's quite sectarian and criticizing everybody else. But then, on the other hand, if you're trying to warn somebody about a controversial teacher, how do you do that? Without sounding like you're criticizing or being sectarian? Or do you not say something to somebody who's going to a controversial teacher, but then, you know, not saying something doesn't seem very kind either, because sometimes people need warnings about things. So, um,. You know, I asked one of my teachers for guidance on this because it comes up in the West quite a bit. And he uh, said if somebody sees somebody else as their teacher, they're in a student teacher relationship, don't try to break that up. Okay? Um, But be open and receptive because if, in case, that person later realizes that the teacher is not behaving properly or whatever. Then they may come to you for aid, so keep the door open so you can give them help. You know what? What I've decided in terms of the controversy is, um, I got an email like this just a few days ago. My goodness, um, yeah, I'll tell you about it um, from from somebody who had started uh, on the on the internet. They were watching teachings by different uh, teachers, and you know there's this controversy in the Tibetan tradition regarding this one, what some people call a protector, what His Holiness says is a spirit. Well, this people was watching the video. This person was watching the videos from the the people who were saying that this practice is a a Buddhist practice is, you know, it isn't a spirit, it's a Buddha, and they wound up going to some of the demonstrations against His Holiness. I don't know if any of you have ever seen these, where people are out on the streets saying, you know, false Dalai Lama, stop lying, and all kinds of things like this. And this person, you know, he had never been to any centers or anything, but he believed what these other people were saying, that His Holiness was limiting religious freedom, and so he went to these demonstrations, and he wrote and he said, I was saying all these things, being really angry at the Dalai Lama, who I've never even met, and saying all this stuff, and then I came home and I just felt really bad about what I did, so what do I do? You know, really kind of broke my heart to to read this because you know, he was really in, in a lot of pain, you know,
1: spiritually. And and for good reason, you know, you know, he
0: would he was led astray. But he let himself be led astray too. So I said you need to do some purification and in the future you'd need to really check out the, the teachers and check out the teachings and make sure what people are saying is, actu- uh, is accurate information. You know. So I said, he told me the names of the people he had been watching, and I said these two people are controversial. I didn't criticize them, I just said they're controversial. And you need to know that, so you need to know that you need to investigate and check out and make wise decisions. You know. And that's for you, for you to think about. And then I said, His Holiness, you know, expressed his reasons about this, and here's the con- the place where you can read that, and you know, and think about it. Yeah. So I didn't say, Oh, those two teachers, they're what they quite idiots, blah 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 blah. You know, I didn't say that. You know, he they they weren't his teachers, but still, I felt like. You yeah. know, it's best I just say they're controversial, which is true. Yeah, and then he can examine and make up his own mind. That makes some sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, um, the Rima tradition is that fitting in, with what you told before about you um, know um, differences in the um, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Mm Because Lung Mm -hmm. and uh, Pacho Rinpoche are both from the Nyingma tradition. And they both wrote. Rime. 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 Oh, Rime. Okay. Rime is interesting. Rime actually means without a tradition. But actually, it's a tradition. (laughs) Yeah, they combined a kind of Nyingma, Kargyu, and maybe a little bit of Sakya. But it was it was actually a push against the, the power of the Ganupas in in Central Tibet, I think, because the Rimea came from Eastern Tibet more. Yeah. But the teaching's still the same if you look. The main differences in, in all these things come in, t- in terms of Tantra traditions. Yeah. But in terms of the basic teachings that we all need to become familiar with, yeah. Remain of all these are the same. Or come to the same point, we should say. Okay, any other questions? No, yeah. Just a simple one. I'm just wondering about the dates uh,
1: for the author, Gontran because he talks about his teachings. Oh, the dates.
0: I don't have the dates. Hmm. You want to look them up on the internet and see if you can find the dates? Okay. It's in the fifteenth century somewhere, because his teacher lived in the fifteenth century. I'm
1: yeah. mm-hmm. just wondering how close in time he lived to uh, Jesus of Oh, that's true.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, his teacher was, was early,
1: fourteenth, more to fourteenth Yeah. Wait a minute. Where was his teacher here? Um I don't know much you mentioned? Um. There's no, there's a yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, 1404.
1: So that was his
0: teacher. His teacher may have started teaching in the 14... Uh, well, he, he, if his teacher was the sixth person from the, uh, the sixth holder of the Tripa of the Gandan throne, then he was after J. Rinpoche for, you know, a number of years
1: that throne will be held for a few years before it's passed on? Yeah, it? yeah.
0: I don't know how they actually do it.
1: It would be like four years or seven years, so you, if you knew, you could count it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Look it up and tell us, okay?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah? It seemed like a waking dream. Huh? In like a waking dream, he talks about it. Uh, oh. In a sofa? Yeah. Oh, he waking mentioned it? Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: So what did he say? Okay, none of us remember. Okay,
1: so look it up and then tell us. Okay. May the spiritual teachers who believe on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it along. If I completely all out and grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable, and their virtuous actions spread in the tender. Dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds, always increase. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to live. From their sufferings. May, may the precious body mine, not yet born, arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain, pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful yet so Chenrezin, may you stay until some sorrow. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and Let Trakosia be in the West. Yeah. For-